Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Okay, hey, today we send off about 400 kids from here to church camp. How many in here? I can't really see. Raise your hand if you're going to church camp as a kid or an adult. Where are we at? Most of them are home packing. They forgot everything. Oh, man, I love church camp. Even Keith, the guy, me and him got to do church camp together for years. It's so near and dear to my heart. Me growing up, church camp was a huge just shaper of my heart. There are things today that I remember from Oil Belt Christian Service Camp in Flora, Illinois. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Like God's word was put deep into my heart. I love that psalm, Psalm 23. We love that psalm. David wrote that. We're in a series on David right now. Um, And I love how that psalm just really shows the Lord is my shepherd and we are the sheep. You know, the church loves to talk about how dumb sheep are, right? They're like, you're a sheep. Look how dumb those things are. But I like to think of us, you know, a little bit more charitably than that. I think of those like little, you ever seen those little precious moments, sheeps, and they're so cuddly and painted nicely until you barely knock it and it breaks. Uh, There's a video that was going around the internet a couple years ago. Take a look at this. And that's me, right? Uh Uh-huh. You ever feel like that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The thing I love, and the internet does this better than most, uh, they'll show that video and then give a tagline to it. So it'll say things like, me trying to save myself from sin, or me when I follow my heart, or my favorite of all of them is me giving my kids advice, right? (laughs) Parents, you know, oh, man. I grew up, my parents would say things to me, and there's always those phrases. They were in last service, not in this one, so I can say whatever I want, you know. They would always say things to me that drove me absolutely insane. I grew up in Illinois in the 90s, so I loved watching Chicago Bulls basketball, Michael Jordan, and I'd try to stay up late, and my parents would be like, it's time to go to bed, and be like, why can't I stay up late? And here's what I'm going to ask for you for some crowd participation right now. This might be cathartic for some of you, especially for some of you grandparents who haven't had a chance to say this in a while. There's going to be a phrase at the bottom of the screen. I'm going to set it up, and you guys get to finish it. Sound good? Sure. We'll go with yes as the answer on that one. I would ask, why can't I stay up late? Why is this that I have to go to bed? And they would say, it's the most theologically sound. Philosophers have debated the brilliance of that statement for years. Oh, because you said so, now that explains the reason behind it. Unbelievable, I hate that. I, would, I have an older brother, I'm the youngest, and so he naturally was the favorite and got to do everything before me. And I would say, why does, he, why does David get that and I don't? That's not fair. And my parents would say, 
that's on me and I feel like we need to redo this. You're going to go home. They would say, uh, why does he get to do it? That's not fair. And they would say, so much better that time. I'd be at the store with my mom. I'd see the new Mario Kart for N64 and I just had to have it. And I'd be like, mom, I need this new game. And she would say, I don't know, Mom. It feels like I really need it. I don't know who you are to say whether I need something or I want something. We've been in this series with David. And if you want to turn your Bibles, we're in 2 Samuel 24. And this is the very last chapter of this this saga of the Israelites with Saul and David. And if you really look back at the beginning of the book all the way to the end, you can really say this this, this whole um, series of, bo- uh, of books is, is wrapped up with this idea of, do you need that or do you want that? Is that something that you need or something that you want? And here's what I want to do right now. I want to talk about those two words so we don't have confusion. In, in the English language, we kind of interchange those and we mean different things by how we say them. And so here's what I, here's what I mean. It is perfectly fine and in God's will for us to want certain things for our life. To have a healthy family, to have a career that is good, to make sure that we can find a spouse. All, those are all fine and good desires. Even David says in Psalm 37, he says, take delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. This is not the difference between need and want. The difference between need and want and when want is bad goes all the way back to the very beginning of our, uh, of our biblical narrative where we see Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything provided for them. They have no needs at all. God is walking with them in the evening. He's giving them everything that they need. But there's a tree in the middle that they see. They're not to eat from it, but the food looks good and desirable, and they want it. The difference between need and want, and when want is a sin, is when want is a replacement for what God has provided. It's, only a, it's a sin when it's a sin as a replacement for what God has provided for us. So as I said, we're in this book of David, in this series of David, and David is reigning as king. We're about 1,000 B.C. This is the most powerful nation on the globe at the time. And yet, as we look through these chapters, we end with this idea of it's this need versus want. Let's walk, through the, let's walk through those together. At the very beginning of the, chapter, or of the book, we see that the people wanted a king over them. 1 Samuel 8 says, We want a king over us, that we may be like the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out and fight our battles. The whole narrative of Scripture up until this point has been God fighting the battle for his people. We see this so clearly in the Egyptian narrative where they're coming out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. They go into the desert. He has a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he leads them into Canaan and fights their battles for them. And yet they say, I understand that, but we want, we want a king over us. So God allows them to have a king. And they get the king they want. They get King Saul. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's, he's a warrior, one to go fight for them. But even though... Saul is the one that, uh, that the people want. Saul ends up wanting something that David has. As David's popularity grows and Saul's uh, dwindles, he ends up chasing David for 15 years throughout caves because he felt his power dwindling. So then they get David. 
a man after God's own heart on the throne. And yet one night in the springtime when kings went off to war, David got up from bed, wandered around the castle, and he looked out and he saw something that wasn't his, but he wanted it. And so he took it, and it ended up in murder. Want always leaves us wanting more. Want never has a destination. Once you get to the place that you think you're done, it wants the next thing and the next thing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so here's the question that I have for you this morning. Is do you trust the shepherd? Do we trust the shepherd wants what's good for us? Let's read 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and of Judah. So the king said to Joab, the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord your God multiply your troops a hundred times over. May the eye of the Lord the king see it. But why does the Lord my king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll fighting men of Israel. So a census of the fighting men took place. Let's jump down to verse 9. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men. They could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet. Choose one for me to carry out against you. So here we have David going out, counting his fighting men, and he gets back the number, 1.3 million able-bodied men. And right when he hears the number, it says he is conscious stricken. Today I'm going to ask a lot of questions that I feel like this text brings up. And it's, it's going to maybe be frustrating because I'm not going to answer too many of them because I don't know how to. But even here I wondered if the number was low, would David have been conscious stricken? Or would he have gone out and started to recruit? You know, before we see David taking a little bit of time before he kind of confesses his sin, even in the Bathsheba story, Nathan confronts him. But here he hears the number and he confesses right away. And yet God brings judgment on him. How quickly? Before he got up the next morning. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. So Gad went to David <clears throat> and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, three months of fling from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress let us fall in the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 people died from Dan to Beersheba. This is the last chapter in 2 Samuel, and it's a peculiar way to wrap up this great story. It's a peculiar way to wrap up this story. I listened to a preacher talk through this text, and he said it raised for him three questions. And I want to give you those right now. Here are the three questions. Why is this wrong? I don't know if you thought that, but why is it wrong for David to count his fighting men? What's wrong with that? How is this fair? 
Why is it fair that 70,000 people died because of the sin of David? And the last one is this. Why does the story end this way? Why is this the way the author decided to wrap up this great story? The first one is, why is this wrong? And I think God is simply saying, because I said so. The very first two things we see, we see God is angry at the nation of Israel, and we see David immediately going and counting his fighting men. We don't understand so often, but the anger of God towards the nation of Israel, they were, they were going away from him in the way in which their worship was. And sometimes we, we don't understand why God gets so angry at the time that we see the sin of the people until we really just have to step back and look and understand that God's desire is for his people to be holy and to follow him. And until we understand the holiness of God and his desire to see that in his people, a lot of the things that we see in the Bible don't seem to line up. They just really seem harsh and unfair. And this story especially just really seems unfair. If we don't see God as the good shepherd wanting good for his sheep, it just seems cruel. Um, I was in the airport in St. Louis. I was probably 15 years old. This was back when you didn't have, you could go, uh, you didn't have to go uh, or stay behind security. You could go up to the gate. So we were picking up some family friends who were flying in. And uh, I decided to, you know, I'm 15, I'm bored in an airport. I'm just walking around looking at stuff. And there was a booth of this religious uh, of religious nature. It wasn't Christianity. So I walked up to him, decided to talk to him. I didn't have anything to do. Uh, so I walked up, they asked me what religion I was. I told him I was a Christian and I'll never forget what the guy says. He goes, I could never believe in Christianity. Any religion that allows their God to die for them is crazy. Now people should die for their God, but a God would never die for their people. Now, I'm 15, and I grew up in the church, and I just always assumed, like, God owed it to us somehow. Like, we're pretty good. And I never heard of it this way before. I never thought that people would think odd about that. Paul talks about this, about the cross, how it's a separating block. He says, for those, uh, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For people who are outside of Christ, when they see the cross, it is foolishness to them of why God would do this. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. It is really lunacy for those who are outside of Christ to understand why would God act a certain way. And it's difficult for us now. But what God is simply saying is the way in which the world views things, the way in which we think things are supposed to be, are not always the way God sees them. God's holiness is pervasive through this story. And God is not going to put up with the sin of Israel at this time. Uh, somebody was going around to my wedding reception with a camcorder, and they would go around. Some of you were probably there, right? They were going around asking, like, any, any marriage advice for the couple? And they would say something. I only remember, we watched it, I only remember one of them. Somebody goes, don't yell unless the house is on fire. I thought, that's not terrible advice. It's pretty good advice. Not only would it be outside of God's character, it would be unloving for him not to do something when he sees the nation of Israel burning to the ground in their sin. God cares more about that than he does what we think makes sense. So the nation that cried out to God is now in sin. The king who they wanted is now comfortable in his position. 
And so we ask, why is it wrong for him to count as fighting men? You know, there's actually a book in the Bible called Numbers. It's about counting people. Moses was told to take a census of the people. So why is it wrong for David to do it here? Because God said so. Because what he has done is he has changed out God for his army. You know that phrase, because I said so? Um, I actually do understand it as an adult now. And I do say it to my kids. And they'll stand up here 20 years ago, my dad used to say the dumbest thing. But I know why I say it. I say it because my children don't have language, the cognitive ability, the wisdom, the understanding to get the message that I'm trying to tell them sometimes. So I simply say, do you trust me? Do we trust the shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do we trust that he has our best interest in mind? Corey Tinboom tells a story of being on a train with her father, who was a watchmaker. He had gone and picked up some, some supplies and they were on their way home. And here's how she tells the story. She says, Seated next to my father in a train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex, sin? He turned and looked at me as he always did when he answered a question, but he didn't say anything. He just stood up, grabbed his work case, picked it up, and set it down. He said, will you carry this off the train for me, Corey? So I stood up and tugged at it, it was crammed with watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes. And it would be a pretty poor father who asked his little girl to carry such a heavy load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you're older and stronger, you can bear it. But for now, you need to trust me to carry it for you. Do we trust the shepherd? Isaiah 55 says, as high as heaven is above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. Do I trust that God's understanding is so far superior to mine that I trust him even when I don't understand why something is going on? Some of you are saying, okay there, smarty pants. What about the very first verse in this entire thing? You're right. It says, God incited David. Did God cause David to sin here? Was this something God was doing? There's a book called First and Second Chronicles that is a parallel to First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And it becomes even more confusing when you read First Chronicles 21:1, where it says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. And while I know there are some Sunday school teachers in here, you don't have to be a Sunday school teacher to know God and Satan, two different people. What is going on here? It's verses like this that really confuse people and think the Bible might not be true, but it really is, and let me tell you why. Is because what is going on here is David is simply allowed to give in to his sin. Is God tempting David here? No. In the book of James, we even know it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away, check this out, by their own evil desires and enticed. David was enticed here, and God allowed him to be tempted by Satan. He allowed his evil desires to pull him away, and God did not stop it. 
God did not tempt him. He chose. He was enticed by the idea of security, by checking the size of his army. In those days, the size of your army was really your bank account, how you stacked up, the name on your door, how you doing. And so David wanted to know, how am I doing? How good am I? How strong are we as a nation? Instead of trusting the shepherd. The second one is this, how is this fair? How is this fair? To which I think God would say, you know what about life? Life's not fair. I'm really excited this morning to tell you about a new church plant that we're launching in Ojai, California. Uh, The first Sunday is going to be September the 10th. And it's a really, it's a really neat opportunity. I was just talking to somebody in the lobby before this who grew up in that area, and he confirmed the way I've heard it described before. is a very spiritual town, but very dark. It's a place you would go for healings and palm readings and crystals and define your inner person, but they don't know. And what this church is going to do, plopped in the middle of Ojai, it's going to be like, oh, that thing you're looking for, he has a name and his name is Jesus. So I'm so excited. So if you want to be in prayer for that, it's the Refuge Church. September 10th is their launch date. I'm going to go out for the launch. And I was talking to my wife and I go, you know what, we should take, I should take a kid with me. So I'm taking my son Blair because I want him to get on fire about God's word being spread. And I want him to know when we give money to this church, it's going towards stuff like that. And I want his heart set on fire. Now, my son Blair has two younger siblings. One of them isn't excited that he's going to California and she is not. Oh, I said who it was. I did really well in the first two services and never said what gender or who it was, but you guys won't say anything. Okay, perfect. Man, I thought I was doing well. Um, It's not fair. So, of course, he brings it up all the time. Like, well, hey, Dad, in California, do you think we're going to be by? That's not fair. It's not fair that he gets to go. So I finally asked her one day. I go, "Uh, would you rather nobody goes or you get to go? And she goes, yeah, I'd rather just nobody got to go there if I don't get to go. And, man, we can laugh at that, but aren't we that way sometimes? We're like, it's not fair. We love fairness. And here we read this story, and, man, David literally took a census. Now, the more you dig into how he took the census, he used slave labor and some of the things were bad. But he really just counted his fighting men, and 70,000 people died because of it. How is that fair? I'm going to be honest with you, there's probably, we don't know how many people died in this, but there's probably some children involved, the most vulnerable and innocent among us. We just don't know. I really have struggled through this text for the last couple months as I've been reading it. I just don't know why God did this because of the sin of David. And I know there's reasons that the sin of the leader are passed down to the generation before and all that, but it just doesn't seem fair to me. And as I prayed through this, I came away with two conclusions. The first one is sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to death. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. We see this in David's life over and over again where there's sin, death seems to follow behind it. The wages of sin is death, but for us on this side of the cross, we know but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so what's that mean? I hope and I pray that tomorrow my sin is less than it is today. I hope a year from now I look back on the person I am today and I don't recognize him because of the saving sanctification of what God's done in my life, and I hope that for you too. But if the goal of my life is to simply sin less, 
I can possibly miss the person of Jesus. Here's what happens in the life of David. David is put as the king. The nation grows to the largest it's ever been. It is the world leader at the time. It has the largest army. And God uses that army to carry out his mission. And what David does is he replaces the tool of God's mission and puts it as the purpose of God's mission. You get that? That he simply sees what God is using and he says, oh no, I'm going to trust that, not the one who's the purpose. That God has always been the one who's gone before him and he uses us. And David forgets and he, he, he thinks that the thing that is used by God is turning into God himself. And it can happen to us as well. That in our pursuit of holiness, that we can miss the person of Jesus, we can turn church into a game that we earn currency or value by acts of service and piety. Uh, theologian Dallas Willard, he puts it this way. He calls this the gospel of sin management. See if this sounds familiar. He says, the gospel best described is if it weren't for sin, we wouldn't need God. Put in a different way, would you be okay if you got to heaven, there was no pain, no suffering, no more tears, and God wasn't there? Who is the purpose of our faith? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do we trust the shepherd? That he is good. Here's the last thing. Why does the book end this way? Why does the book end this way? And here's what I think God's asking. Do you really need that? Or do you just want that? We didn't get the ending we wanted. If this was a book or a Disney movie, I don't think it would end with, and David counted fighting men and 70,000 people died. We'd be like, what makes no sense? Why did the book end this way? Here's why. God's trying to show the people what they really need. See, the, the book is really one big circle. It starts off with Hannah crying in the temple for salvation. And then we see at the very end, David on the, uh, on the future place of the temple crying out for, for, uh, to be saved. We see the book starting out with the nation saying, we need a king, give us a king. And in the end, we have David, the king they've always wanted, a man after God's own heart, letting them down. The writer is trying to put the finest point he possibly can on this entire story by simply saying, the best the world has to offer you, the very best, David, a man after God's own heart, even he will let you down. You need a better king. The king that you're looking for is not on this earth. He is coming later. Amen. Do we trust the shepherd? Do we trust that God has our best intentions in mind? In verse 18 on that day, Gad went to David and he said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. So David walks up and he meets this man and he bows before him. He's like, King David, what can I do for you? He goes, I've come to buy your, uh, your threshing floor so that I can make a sacrifice to the altar of, of God. And he goes, buy it. You're the king. I'm giving it to you. I'll give you my oxen. I'll give you everything. You don't need to pay for anything. Uh, David, it is my honor to do this for you. We see towards the end of this story, David's heart changing. The thing I love about David, and the reason we call this whole series a man after God's own heart, is not because he doesn't sin. It's because he understands what it's like 
to ask for forgiveness, to confess his sin, to be changed, to have his heart softened. I, I wonder if David liked Psalm 23. I don't know if they sang it. I love the way it ends. It just simply says, and goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You know that word follow means to chase. That it's chasing after him. So that means in rebellion and sin, God's goodness and mercy are just chasing us like a dog biting at your ankle, just chasing you. That means when we fall into apathy, God's goodness, even in those moments, is chasing after us. Or when we follow those false idols of money and fame and importance, when we turn around, what we see is God's goodness and mercy following me, chasing after me. David goes up and he says this, He says, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God a burnt offering of something that costs me nothing. And so David here is saying, I have to give of myself if I'm going to sacrifice to God. At this point in time, the plague is still going on. People are still dying. And there's an image we get of an angel on the threshing floor with his sword reached back towards Jerusalem to strike them down. And David says, no, kill me instead. And God spares them both. He buys the threshing floor on Mount Moriah. We learn the location from uh, 2 Chronicles 3. You see, Mount Moriah was the exact location that a thousand years earlier, Abraham took his son Isaac up to. As Isaac would carry the, the materials for the altar that he would be sacrificed on. And he builds an altar and he lays him out. And as Abraham has the knife, has, has the knife reached back to uh, sacrifice his son, God sends an angel to stop his arm and provides a ram in the thicket. Fast forward a thousand years later, David is on the same location and sees an angel with the sword reached out towards Jerusalem, ready to strike them down. And God sends an angel to hold his arm back and save them. A thousand years from then, there's a man named Jesus who carries a cross up a hill to Golgotha to be crucified for us. On that day, the day before, Jesus said, God, if there's any other way to do this, let this cup pass for me. Not my will, but your will be done. He says, I don't want to do this, but I have a need to follow you, and you've always provided and as he goes up that hill that day, there was a soldier with a spear leaned back to stick into God's side. But that day, God did not send an angel to stop it. The only one who was innocent ever took the punishment for us. So my question is, are we okay to simply say, do we trust the shepherd that he cares for us, that he has our good in mind? The only one innocent took the punishment for us. So I'll ask the question again for you. Do you trust the shepherd? Uh, would you guys stand with me? I want to pray for you and ask you a few questions this morning. There's a, 
this text leads us into a few different places. You know, it was really hard for me to understand why would God allow this pain and punishment to come on uh, the nation of Israel this way. It was this year at VBS. Any of you guys serve in VBS? Do we have any VBS volunteers in here? See, they still raise their hand like this. They're too tired still. Like, okay, oh, yeah, I did. Um, I was sitting on the couch, and nighttime after VBS is kind of like halftime in an NFL locker room. You got ice on your knee. You're popping Advil, drinking Gatorade, just like, give me to tomorrow. And I got a phone call from my dad, and he told me that my 15-year-old cousin was just hit by a truck and killed on his motorcycle on the way home from work. He's a sweet boy. Um... He'd just gotten back into going to church about a year or so ago. The youth minister poured into him. God bless youth ministers. And um, no clue what was going on, why this had happened. And I went down to the funeral. He was a football player and a wrestler, big old boy. And as we stand at the, at the graveside, uh, my cousin, his uncle, stood at the head of the casket. There's probably 50, 60 teammates and um, a slew of parents. This is a small town. And I heard the most concise gospel message I'd ever heard. And then my cousin grabbed a guitar and sang a worship song to Jesus. And I had no way, shape, or form believed that God had anything to do with this death, but I think he, he was okay to use it to show people what does it mean to follow Jesus the only way that you're going to get through. God cares so much more about our eternity than he cares about our present situation. And until we understand that, we'll never understand that God's ability to take 70,000 people early so millions may not perish. Do we truly trust the shepherd this morning? We're gonna have prayer team around the room this morning. They'll have lanyards on. And there's a few things that I'd like to just ask you um, this morning. Maybe you've never... Maybe you've never placed your trust in Jesus, the only good one to lead us. Maybe you've never made that decision. Go talk to somebody this morning and just simply say, I'm ready to follow. Maybe some of you are in a season of doubt and struggle. And here's just what I wanna encourage you with this morning. As you turn around, you don't see scoffers or people mocking you. You just see the goodness of God running after you chasing you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let's pray. We deserve very little of what you give us, God, but we are thankful this morning to a God who saw us in need and sent not a messenger, not, you see yourself, to show what it means to love those around us, to care for each other. And so, God, I pray when there are times in our life that are confusing, that we don't understand, that we lean on you, the one who can sustain us, the one who has seen it, the one whose knowledge is so beyond us. And so, God, that we would walk in step with you and your word. God, I pray that we can be that encouragement for somebody in our life this week. Just somebody to to spur them on towards love and good deeds, just to, to be there for. So God, help us. Help us to trust you more. 
Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.